Welcome to Walking in Faith, a weekly podcast dedicated to examining the Bible to help lifelong seekers of the kingdom of God expand their faith and understanding by exploring God's Word. Now let's join Pastor Rob Currington as he shares this week's message. We're finishing up in Judges, the life of Samson, Judges 12, 8 through 16, 31. You can turn to chapter 16 if you would. But as you're turning, I want you to imagine if you were in a desert with no water and far from any source of water. And maybe it had been some time, maybe even uh, uh, 12 hours or more, maybe a day or so. What would you do for a cup of water? Or maybe just for a, a ringing of water? What would you do to, to quench that thirst? Have you ever been in a place where you were so thirsty and you were not able to get to some water quickly? What would you give up for just a drop of water? The rich man in one of Jesus' teachings plead while suffering in Hades, cried out, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and put it on my tongue because I'm in agony in this fire. Of course, there is no respite for him. We might think of Esau, who though he was not thirsty, was so hungry that he was willing to give up his birthright, his inheritance, all that he had, all that was due to him for just a cup of stool. People do crazy things when thirsty and hunger, that need to satisfy those desires, can cause us to make bad decisions. But this thirst and hunger is not only for bodily substance, but also when we crave things outside the promises of God. What price is a man or a woman paid for a desire, a thirst, a hunger for someone other than their spouse? Or a child who has a thirst and hunger to rebel against their parents? Or so on and so forth. The cost that we want to bear to satisfy that thirst and hunger many times The consequences outweigh that, but yet we do so. Last week, we examined the rise and fall of Samson, the strongest man ever to live. A man appointed by Yahweh to deliver his children from their enemies. Unfortunately, we learned that Samson allowed himself to be ruled and controlled by his lustful heart rather than by his calling that led to his death. As you recall, we read last week that Samson was set apart by God to serve a special purpose. Samson took the vow of a Nazarite. A Nazarite took special vows to abstain from certain things for religious purposes. Yahweh lays down those requirements in Numbers chapter 6. And though it seems that there were both temporary vows and perpetual vows, I said it fine last week. One may take. In scripture, only three are identified as those who took perpetual Nazarite vows. That was Samson, who we've been studying, uh, Samuel, who we'll look at in a couple of years, and then John the Baptist. There were three distinguished marks of someone who took that vow. They, a renunciation of wine, a prohibition uh, of using a razor, and the avoidance of contact with a, deadly, a dead body. But as we learned last week, Samson did not take his vow or his calling seriously. The most famous of all judges, Samson is the the biggest judge, the most popular, the one that we have the most information about. He squandered his potential and his gift 
So for self-satisfaction, well, this is going to be a long one. <laughs> yeah, he is listed in the book of Hebrews as a man of faith. How can that be? This is a man who was selfish, self-centered, but yet he's also called a man of faith. Pastor Tim Keller, we saw this last week, but I want to remind you. He writes, as you look on the monitor, that the life of Samson is exciting, but it's also disturbing and disappointing. He is the last judge, and his miraculous birth prepares us for a wonderful, powerful deliverer. Remember, he was a supernatural, miraculous birth. Instead, we find by far the most flawed character in the book, a violent, impulsive, sex-driven, ungodly, complacent man. He uses his spirit-given strength selfishly to extricate himself from his troubles, his weaknesses get him into. He is an individual picture of the state of Israel as a whole, and he's virtually indistinguishable from the pagan Philistines. He is so much like them that you cannot really tell the difference, and he's quite happy to exist under their rule instead of under God's. We pointed out that Samson was a man of faith only when he trusted in the Lord. His faith was imperfect like many of us, but even in his imperfection and flawed character, God used him to accomplish his purpose. You might remember I said this last week that living in faith means being satisfied with the promises and the person of God, while living in the flesh is not being satisfied with the person and promises of God. When we live in obedience to God, we will be victorious. When we live in disobedience, we suffer defeat. And all of us know times of victory, but we also know times of defeat. The problem of Samson, like his contemporaries, is that he sought satisfaction outside of God's promises. And he adopted the culture of the ungodly pagans. This is shown in his self-centeredness, which leads him to sexual immorality. It's no wonder that three of the most celebrated men of the Old Testament struggle with sexual immorality. We think of Samson, we think of David, we think of Solomon. And they all three paid a high price, a high cost for their sin. Samson could not or would not control his desire for strange flesh. He had a thirst for that. His desire for self-satisfaction was stronger than his desire to please God, like many of us today. Though he was set apart for the glory of God and the good of his people, Samson could care less. And counting the cost, he found it more valuable to pursue the pleasures of his libido than the pleasures of God. Unfortunately, this describes the culture today. The great freedom that is most valued in our culture today, the greatest liberty treasured today, is that of sexual freedom. The freedom to pursue my own satisfaction at any and every cost. This has led to easy divorce, abortion, affairs, and abuse. Declaring ourselves free to pursue every sexual whim and fancy, we have enslaved ourselves with the chains of sin and the curse of death. Just again, as a reminder, Pastor Garrett Kell, we saw this last week, he warned us that sin will ensure that you can escape 
its grasp at any time you want. That's what sin says. Just, just have me for a moment. Just have me for pleasure. It, it's just something that's just between you and I. Your wife will never find out. Your husband will never find out. Your parents will never find out. But he goes on to write <clears throat> that sin is strengthened as you feed it. You won't be strong enough to escape it. Sin changes your affections as you feast on it. In other words, you'll, you'll actually become more thirsty, more hungry, more, more desirous of sin the more you take of it so that you won't want to leave. But don't fall for the tempter's trap. Today I want to continue to consider the life of Samson as we consider our own calling and our own commitment to the Lord as those that are set apart for the purpose of God. Samson found himself in a cycle that he could not escape and he wound up paying a high price. And I think there's many of us as Christians that are in the same way we're in this cycle where we're falling to sin and we, we confess and we repent and, and then we start to walk, we feel a little bit stronger, but then once again we find ourselves falling into the same temptations, the same snares. Where and how did Samson go wrong, we want to know. How did he go from being set apart as a young child to compromising his vows and committed suicide? One of the saddest verses that we looked at last week is found in Judges 16.20. You may want to turn there. We'll look at it again. It's here on the monitor. And you may again want to underline this or highlight this Bible. Because I think it's what's missing for those who are professing Christ today. It says that Samson did not know that the Lord had left him. He did not know that the Lord had left him. Father, I pray that anyone that's listening or watching me this morning or at some later date would not fall into this same trap. That we would be aware when your spirit is within us and when we're walking away. Father, strengthen us this morning. Help us to learn. These things are written as an example, as a warning, as an encouragement, as a challenge maybe even as a rebuke. Father, may we receive it with the grace that you're giving to us. Lord, that we may respond to your Spirit's work and that we may be men and women and children of faith. In your name we pray. Amen. His downfall, Samson's downfall, was that his heart was not in the right place. And by that, we meant that he, instead of focusing on pleasing the Lord, being set on God, he was focusing on pleasing himself. As a reminder, the heart was made of three areas, right? It's the mind. It's the things that we think, okay? It's, it's, the, it's our emotions. It's the things that we desire. It's, it's the will. It's the things that we choose. This is very important for us to understand when we say follow your heart or, you know, follow your feelings. Well, well the heart is made of these three things. And we saw last week from Jeremiah that the world tells you, follow your heart. Well, I'm going to tell you today, do not follow your heart. The Bible says that the heart is desperately sick. It's desperately wicked. Who can know it? Only God knows our heart. Even you are not always aware of your heart and how it plays out in your life. And so you and I need to understand this. The scripture warns us that the heart is deceitful. And what happened with Samson is we saw that his thinking what was right was wrong. Or so, yeah, what he was thinking what was wrong was right. 
The Bible told us, be careful or warn or woe, or says woe to those who take what is right and make it wrong and make it wrong is right. And that's the world we live in today. He did not control his own desires and he did not choose wisely. And so you saw why his life ended up the way it did today. And you here, I would say, if we're honest with ourselves, there are ways in which we are not thinking biblically. We're thinking self-centered. There are ways in which we are not controlling our desires, those things that we hunger and thirst for. And we're not choosing wisely and we're facing the consequences. And then we're wondering, God, where are you? We allow our hearts, our thoughts, emotions, and will to be influenced by the world. And the world in, in the end of that is death. Do we have that up there, First John chapter 2? I can't remember. I do. Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Samson loved the things of the world. Remember, he saw that woman walking down the street and he said to his parents, get her for she is right in my eyes. He saw, he desired, and he took. And we saw him put that back. That's the original sin. Eve, Eve saw the fruit. She saw that it was desirous to eat. And then she took and gave to her husband. Plunging the whole of humanity into sin and rebellions against our maker. Samson's love this world led to his downfall. However, God question notes that Samson's life is one of convictions. How many of you without raising your hand or saying amen would say, man, my life is a life of contradiction. I say I love God. I say I want to please God. I love my church, but yet we find ourselves contradicting those very words by our thoughts, our desires, and our actions. He was a man of great physical strength, yet displayed great moral weakness. He was a judge for 20 years and a Nazarite set apart from God from birth, yet he continually broke the rules. The Spirit of God came upon him many times, giving him strength to fight the Philistines, the oppressors. This in spite of the fact that Samson was a womanizer and a vengeful man. Samson's life illustrates the necessity of saying no to fleshly temptations. God's use of even flawed sinful men to accomplish his will, which is interesting, but the consequences of sin is still there, but yet also is the mercy of God. So I want to then take this. This was the second part of the message I wasn't able to get to last week. And that's where we're going to rest this morning. Is we want to consider how you and I can avoid the same fate as Samson. Your sin may not be sexual immorality, but it might be pride. It might be other physical pleasures. It might be procrastination. It could be all sorts of different things that are not glorifying to God. We want to take Paul's warning that Samson serves as an example to us to help us serve the Lord more faithfully. Like Samson, we too are set apart to accomplish, his, to accomplish the, uh, the purposes of God. In Romans 8, you'll see here in the monitor, that the Bible says that, that for those whom he foreknew, does that, did I have that on there? Okay. For those he foreknew, took Romans 8, 29 through 30. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. 
And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What we learn from that passage is that God has ordained that his adopted children will be like Jesus. Paul goes on to write to the Christians at Colossae that God has begun this wonderful work when he delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. That's what happens when you and I are born again, when we're regenerated, when we accept Christ as our Savior. This promise to make us into the image of Christ is called sanctification. Wayne Grubman uh, defines sanctification as, are we, are, we, are we dead there? Okay, something didn't work out. All right, that's my, I'll take that. So try to get this as best. I apologize for it. I worked on it this morning. I must have did something uh, incorrect. But sanctification is a progressive work of God and man that makes us more and more free from sin and like Christ in our actual lives. In other words, when Jesus saves us, he wants to conform us into the image of, uh, of his son. Jesus didn't come to the cross just to save us from hell, just to get us out of punishment, but he came to make us into the image of his son. And so sanctification is that pro pro uh, process where we become freer and freer from sin. Kind of like what uh, Landon was speaking of. We're no longer slaves to sin. Now we become slaves to righteousness. We become not only freer from sin, but more and more like Christ. We're growing in spiritual maturity. He goes on to write that sanctification is primarily a work of God. That is, God is the one who makes the Christian more holy than they were before salvation. He's doing a work inside of us. The scripture defines sanctification as an act of God. In 1 Thessalonians 5.23, says, Paul writes, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you or set you apart or make you holy completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Philippians, it says, for God is the one working in you both to will and to work according to his good pleasure. In 1 Corinthians 1.30, and because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God. He's our righteousness, he's our sanctification, and he's our redemption. So God is doing a work to make us freer from sin and make us more like his son. That's what God's work is doing once we're saved. But Grudem continues to write that in a different way, sanctification is a cooperative process. It's where we work with God. He calls us to do something in addition to that, where a person yields to the work of spirit to be more like Christ. Here's a few verses I want to look at. Romans 6.13 tells us, Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members as instruments for, for righteousness. We just read this just a little bit earlier. In Romans 12.1, it says, I appeal to you, present your bodies a living sacrifice. Then 2 Corinthians 7.1 since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of the body and spirit, 
bringing holiness. So in other words, there's a work of God in which he does things, but there's things that he calls us to do. In other words, there are things that we are to put off and to put on, as we see in Colossians. There are ways in which we are to yield to the Holy Spirit's work. Now, just as we continue, there's three stages to sanctification. That first stage is a definite beginning. It's when we are lost. Think of it as we are lost. Oh, you got that up there. Thank you. It's where we are lost. We're not a a Christian. We're slaves to sin, as you see there on the bottom. But step one is conversion. That's when we repent of our sin and we put our trust in Christ. That's the first step is we are now set apart. We are made holy. We are declared holy. Then the second stage is there is that Christian life. That, that, that may be however many years we have left on this earth. For some, it could be a lifetime, you know, 20, 30, 40, 80, 90 years. For others, it might be less. But that's that progress where we're putting on, putting off. We're yielding to the Spirit. And God is working in our lives. And then that third and last step is death. That's when we become as Jesus is. Holy, perfect. We don't become God. Let me, let me rectify that. We don't become God, but we become glorified. That's when sin is delivered. We're delivered from the presence of sin. So in step one, we're delivered from the power of sin. Step two, I'm sorry, from the penalty of sin. Step two, the Christian life, we're, we're, we're delivered from the power of sin. And number three, step three, we're delivered from the presence of sin. You heard us talking at so our lives right here as you're sitting here you're in step two you are growing in holiness but there may be some of you here this morning as you haven't even done step one you're still in your sin you're a slave to sin you may not even know that you need a savior you may not even be aware that your eternity is death in hell like the rich man who asked for the for water just to be put on the tip of his tongue If that is the case, I would call you to repent and put your trust not in your good works, but that of Jesus Christ. That's the call for you and I. The Bible says if we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. However, what we can do is we can look forward to a complete holiness. Let me ask you, and you can say amen to this one. Are you tired of just struggling and battling sin? I know that I am. I'm ready to be glorified. Now, I'm a little bit concerned about how he might cause me to die. I'd like that to be painless and in my sleep. But I'm looking forward to that day when I am no longer thirsty and hungry for the things other than God. I'm waiting and ready to be perfected. So is my wife. Be perfected, she says, Rob. Now, one of the issues that you and I need me to clear about, though, is the difference between sanctification and justification. You know, I'm getting a little bit wordy here. I'm going to drop through there. What does I want to understand is justification and sanctification are two different things. The Catholicism put him, puts it together. That's an error. That's a biblical error. We need to see that justification is where God imputes to us Christ's righteousness. It's not something that is done to us. Sometimes we've used the phrase justified as, as, just as I've never sinned. And, and that's, not a, that's not a clear biblical definition. And many times I've used the phrase justification means that God has made me right. He makes me right. And that's not a good way of writing it either. 
All justification is God is looking at me and says, I'm going to give you Jesus' righteousness. So when I see Joanna, all I see is Christ. So I, he says, not guilty. So it's just a declaration. It's imputed to us. That's the word that we use. But sanctification, though, and here's the good news, sanctification is something that's not imputed to us, declared. It's something imparted to us. It's the Holy Spirit as he comes among us. When we accept Christ, he comes and he reigns in us. And he begins not rearranging the furniture. Usually what he's doing, you think of someone coming into a new house or an old house. He's got to clean it out. He rearranges the, you know, the, the furniture and he paints maybe the walls to cover the old dirt. It's much more net. He's throwing stuff out, man. He's not painting walls. He's tearing them down. He, he tears up and rips up the foundation and he builds something new within us. That's why the process is messy. It takes a long time. It's, it's difficult. It's uncomfortable. He's taking the things, that favorite chair that you have, and he's saying, I'm throwing this out. And he's saying, you plead with him, no, 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 no. Let me, let me just put it in this back room where no one else sees. That old chair is your sin, your desire, your flesh. And I'll just go back there and stand there when no one else is around. And that's what we do. We're doing that today, many of us, most of us, all of us. We have that old chair in our life. But he's doing more. He's imported or imparted the Holy Spirit to us. We're being transformed each and every day. We're becoming healthier and healthier as a Christian. That's what I always tell people. Let me ask you, when they say, well, I'm not sure if I'm a Christian or not. Well, let me ask you, are you the same person you were a year ago, two years ago? As a Christian, we should be a different person than we were six, six months ago, three months ago. Let me say this. You will never reach sinless perfection. You will never reach a time in your life where you have no sin, no sinful thoughts, no sinful desires. That, that will never happen. Actually, as we were reading that song, I asked the Lord, thank you for picking that, Brandon. I asked the Lord that I might grow. Actually, what happens, you can tell that you're becoming more and more sanctified and more and more like Christ when your conscience is more sensitive to sin. What did Paul say 20, 30 years after he was a Christian? This is the man, the apostle, right? The apostle Paul wrote the majority of the New Testament. What did he say? I am the chiefest of sinners. His, his conscience was not becoming more bolder. It was becoming more sensitive. Is your conscience become more sensitive or you become bolder in that, hey, look at what I am. I remember talking to a lady that used to come here, came here uh, for several, for, for a while and one of the things she struggled with when we'd say, you know, you're still a sinner who sins. No, no, no. I'm saved and delivered. Yes, you are. But yet I, I don't have any problem with sin. Then where's your conscience? As we see from Scripture, it becomes more sensitive to the things of sin. It comes quicker. Oh, I, I did. The, the mark of someone who is growing more like Christ is not running from God when they sin, but going quicker to God. Amen. So our, sense, our, our conscience does not become bolder. Our conscience becomes sensitive. However, we become bolder to the throne of room of grace. That's the mark of someone who is being transformed. Will you have sin in your life? Yes. Will you struggle with a particular sin your whole life? 
you very may well be. And you will have periods of victories and periods of defeat, but that time should be much further and further between. Scripture calls us in Philippians chapter 2. Oh, you know what? Let's, let's go back to, did I have that one? Is that still there? Do you, no? Okay, I'm sorry. Scripture calls us to in Philippians chapter 2. He says, my beloved, as you have always obeyed me, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. See, Samson, uh, he didn't have the spirit as you and I have the spirit. But what you and I need to see is that God works in us for his will and his purpose. Samson fought against that. He worked for his own will and for his own purpose. And so you and I must not fall into that same trap. This yielding to the spirit and the work of putting off sinful habits and desires and putting on the commands of Christ, let me tell you, is not easy. There is an old slogan that promotes an error that we don't have any role in sanctification. And all that we have to do is to let go and let God. Have you ever heard it? It's called um, Kenzian, I think is what it is. Just let go and let God. That's all I need to do. It's kind of like captured in that song, oh, Jesus, take the wheel. All I need to do is let go and God will do his work and I'll become a stronger Christian, more mature by osmosis. You know, try that with your six-month-old child. Try that with your eight-year-old son. Oh, you don't just sit there in the room. I'm not going to feed you or give you water or help you grow. I'm just going to sit there and you're just by osmosis. You're just going to grow. It doesn't happen that way. Alistair McBeg, he warns us that true Christianity, oh, we have it on here, great. You may want to take a, a picture of this one, write this down. He says, true Christianity is a struggle. It is a fight and a warfare. That's why he says, bodily exercises profiteth little. Many of us spend more time on our body in trying to make it more physically strong than we do our spiritual soul. But Christianity is a struggle, a fight, a warfare. He that pretends to condemn fighting and teaching that we ought to just sit still and yield ourselves to God appears to me to misunderstand the Bible and to make a great mistake. That's why he gives us the armor of God. Every day you and I are to realize that we are in a battle. We're to grab our armor, getting ready to fight the good fight. J.C. Rolla, pastor and theologian from the 19th century, remarked that he that would understand the nature of true holiness, that's sanctification, that's being set apart, must know that the Christian is a man of war. If we would be holy, we must fight. That's why the Bible warns us that Satan is a liar. He's a deceiver. He presents himself as an angel of light. He, he's a lion that's seeking, a roaring lion seeking to devour. He's an accuser of the brethren. And you and I are walking many times through our Christian life thinking that everything's okay. Satan is just a barking dog that just barks. But yet you and I go over there and want to pet him and play with him, thinking that it's okay until we get bit. That bite costs us. 
However, our spiritual growth and maturity will be stunted if we compromise with the world as Samson did. In fact, a lack of spiritual growth and maturity would be a sign that one is not truly regenerated. Born again, a child of God, Tim Keller warns that the greatest danger to the church is becoming just the same as the surrounding culture. And I'm afraid there are many churches and many Christians in which you cannot tell the difference. Samson's life shows us that. The only hope he writes for the church is Jesus' rescuing death as Samson's death shows us. His rescue was his death. That's what got him out of the cycle. John Newton, the former slave ship owner, he was a man that Jesus rescued from a life of sin and death. After coming to Christ, he wrote the great hymn, Amazing Grace, as well as writing the song, I Ask the Lord That I May Grow. He testified, I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I want to be. I'm not even what I hope to be in another world. But I still am not what I once used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. I stand by the grace of God alone. Amen? You and I understand this. But you and I should not be comfortable remaining in this way. We all know well when we make eye contact in the mirror each night, it's only by the grace of God that we're accepted and adopted into the family. We know that we are not accepted by our works, by our own faithfulness to our own standards. Yet we also know that our desire for Christ should grow and that our lives should be marked by a growing pursuit of holiness. And so we too are men and women of contradiction. The problem is too many times we get ensnared by our own hearts, our own thoughts, our own emotions and will. And we pursue our own satisfaction outside of God's promises because our thirst and hunger is so strong and we believe that only the world can satisfy it. But Jesus said, come to me, all you who are thirsty and hunger, and I will give you the bread of life. I will give you from the fountain that will satisfy that thirst. I pray that you've done so. But that's not just the mark of someone who accepts Christ. That's the mark of someone who's being transformed by the Spirit of Christ and by their obedience and living faithfully to the commands of Christ. Pastor Adam Page tweeted out this week that Jesus isn't just the means to our desired end. I wish I had this up there for you. I, I didn't do that one. But Jesus isn't just the means to our desired end. So, so many people say, well, I'll come to Jesus because Jesus will help me love my wife a little bit better or my wife will accept me a little bit better. Or, or if, I, if I come to Jesus, then I can do some marketing and, and the people can be people that I can you know, sign in my business or whatever. Or if I go with Jesus and my kids will love me and everything will be great. That's what many people want. See, they have their lives, and it's this messy drink of water. And to clean it up, they say, well, I'll throw Jesus in there, and then I'll just stir it, and now look at my life is complete and wonderful. That's not the Christian life. That's not the sanctification. Jesus isn't just the means to our desired end. It's not just a way to get it. He says he is our desire. 
He is what we thirst and hungry for, hunger for. He's the means and the final destination. I am the way, the truth, and life. There is no way to, to the Father except through me. That's why Jesus is the great treasure of great price. He is the, the pearl. He, he, is, he, is, he is these things that we should desire. Samson desired women. He desired to satisfy his own flesh, his own lusts. He didn't care for the women. He just cared for his own body and meeting his own needs. And so we have many people today that use their spouses in the same way. They're just a means to an end. Their children are means. Their job is a means to an end. And we use the church in the same way. And then we use Jesus. But Jesus is to be the desire, the one that we thirst and hunger for. Let me tell you, Christian, it is easier to find and make excuses not to pursue holiness. There are many ways you can say, well, I'm not going to do this today. I'm not going to do this tomorrow. I, I, you know, it's just so hard right now. I need a break. It's much easier to do that than to continue to put on and to put off and to yield to the Spirit's work. Jesus warns the Spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. The question is, do you want to be more holy? Do you want to be more like Christ? Or have you just made friends with your sin? Are you tired of the struggle with sin? And, uh, or have you surrendered to your selfish desires? In his book, The God's Plan for the Battle Plan for the Mind, David Saxon says this, listen, please. Perhaps the best advice I could offer someone who desires to become a, a stable, godly person of meditation, someone who wants to be more holy, he says, is this. Ready? Write this down. Turn off the television and fight the temptation to be an entertainment-dominated person. We spend much more time entertaining ourselves than pursuing the things of God. Not that you can't do one and both, but to be honest, the times that we spend working out, the times that we entertain ourselves, the times that we have our me times, how much of that is pursuing holiness? Reading scripture, setting with your family, worshiping God. The ratio there would be quite bad, wouldn't it? The wholesale surrender, he writes, of the mind to the world's programs and amusements have led R. Kent Hughes to moan that this cosmic potential of the believer's mind introduces the greatest scandal of, the, of the, today's church. Here it is. You have Christians without Christian minds and Christians who do not think Christianly. Last week we talked about in our adult core class on rediscovering the church there was a um, survey, and it was the percentage of pastors who have a biblical worldview. What was that percentage? you remember? Wasn't it 37%? 41% had a biblical mind. That was pastors. They had the mind of Samson, the pursuit of Samson. And that would probably claim many of us. How much does your thinking line up to biblical thinking, to the things of Scripture? How much of your desires line up to the things of the Bible? How much does your choices line up to the choices that God has called you to do? What are you thinking? In this moment, what is occupying your thoughts? 
Today, what are your desires and longings? He tells us to seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then these things will be added. But we say, no, I need to add these things first, and then I'll take time to seek after God. We, we put the cart before the horse. Colossians chapter 3, verse 2. The Apostle Paul calls his readers to have their thinking consumed with Christ. He says, set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. We have too many Christians, those who profess Christ, too many churches who are setting things here on earth. This earth is fading away. This earth is, is, is leading to death. Brothers and sisters, you and I need to put our things on the things of Christ. We're so gathered and worried about this world. And there are many things to be worried and concerned. But we must realize that Christ is coming again. We will be glorified. That is the end result. Terry Enns, writing for the Association of Certified Biblical Counselors. Do we have this right? Thank you, Ben. He writes this. Further, we will never change what we do until, the change we, or until we change the way we think. And this is where it all went wrong with Samson. It always starts with your thinking. Then it goes to your desires. And then it goes to your choices. He says, and we must not just think, stop doing fill in the blank. We must have thoughts focused on the things above. Our priorities and thoughts need to be aligned with God's priorities and thoughts. Samson lost this, and it cost him his life. His loss of his potential. It lost, and it suffered for the, uh, and the Israelites suffered because of that. So I'm calling you this morning that you and I need to think the way that God thinks. Our feet must be on the earth, but our mind must be in heaven. The practical everyday affairs of life get direction from Christ in heaven. Many of us think of the Bible and we think, oh yeah, it's a good book. It has some things to say, but it's not really relevant to me, to my life, to the way I work, to my relationship with my spouse, how I use my money, where I should live. The Bible has no relevancy to those things, but it does. Bible is inspired by God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction and training in righteousness. Everything that you and I need to know, that everything that you and I will one day stand before God and give account of is found here in his book. And I want to challenge you, maybe rebuke. There are some of the things that you're involved in that you need to think, is this something that is biblical? Is this something that pleases God? Do I have a desire on something that may be good, but am I desiring it in a bad way? And am I choosing unbiblical things? And is this why in my life I'm struggling? I don't feel like I'm making headway in my spiritual life. Let us commit this morning to pursuing holiness and persevere in battling any and all sinful habits and desires. I love this old hymn. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory, glorious, of his glory and grace. Christian, let us not fall in the trap of Samson. Before the day that we were born, God has decided and ordained that we would be set apart for his glory. That we may be his workmanship, created to do good works. 
you and I are to be in the process of sanctification even now. Our lives transformed. Let us not fall into sin, but let us be slaves to righteousness, willing and obedient and following the things of Christ, that we may be men and women of faith. Amen? Let us do so. May God enable us to do so. Let's bow our heads. The worship team comes up. And Randy comes and closes us in prayer. Again, I want you just to pause and just think. The life of Samson is exciting. There's much adventure. We may even desire to have that type of strength at times, but yet he was known for his moral weakness more than for his physical strength. Let us not be men and women of moral weakness, of spiritual weakness, but recognize that we can boldly go to the grace of God and ask for more grace and more faith. I love that song, that prayer, so that we may too become more holy more like Christ, freer from sin. Consider the ways in which your life is like Samson, that you had made friends with the world. Can the world tell the difference? If you didn't tell someone what church you went to, would they know that you're a Christian at all? Would it surprise them that you're a Christian or that you go to church? Your family, your friends, your neighbors. Would you pray and ask the Holy Spirit to help you to respond What is it that you need to put off? What is it that you need to put on? And what is it in what ways do you need to yield to the Spirit for the glory of God and for our good? Randy, would you come and close us? We hope you have enjoyed this week's message. We encourage you to share it with others. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at info at orangevilla.org. Be sure and join us for next week's message by subscribing to this podcast. To learn more about our ministry, submit prayer requests, or to find ways you can help hear the gospel, visit us online at orangevilla.org. Till next time, we hope the grace and peace of God's love be ever-present in your life.